Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing in Queensway, W2. Two streets west of the torture of Vincent Carey. One street southwest of the murderous night porter. A few buildings south of the stabbing of US airman Stanley Thurman. And two streets west of the mysterious taxi driver slayings. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Nestled between Hyde Park and Notting Hill, Queensway is a feeble excuse for a shopping district. Set on a single street, it's the kind of place you'd go if you like buying crap and being overcharged for the privilege. Whether Union Jack umbrellas which break the second it rains, tatty mugs of disgraced royals with a penchant for shit stirring and not sweating, or novelty bags of M&Ms, as there's nothing more British. At 106 Queensway, currently sits a four-storey terrace with a Chinese restaurant called Duck and Noodle on the ground floor and above a private flats, or as most of the residences in this area are. Airbnbs, hostels or supposedly cheap hotels where tourists get royally fleeced for essentially renting a broom closet. Back in late 1968, this was a cheap hostel where the staff of the nearby Winton Hotel slept. In a front-facing room on the top floor lived 52-year-old night porter Dominic Kelly, a man who had once had a very promising career. And yet unable to accept any criticism or rejection, this petty loser would subject Maria de Santos, a 36-year-old chambermaid, to one of the most horrible deaths ever. 
My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 210. The Loser. The mark of a person's success isn't based on the money they make or the things that they buy, but how well they deal with their failures. For many, failure is all part of growing. But for others, it can be a permanent blight on their lives, which can lead to anger, jealousy, vengeance, and even death. The early life of Dominic Kelly began as the classic story of triumph over adversity. Born on the 23rd of June 1917 in Sandbach, Cheshire, Dominic Kelly was the second youngest of seven to James, a chemical labourer, and Anne, a housewife. As a family of nine, Raised in a small terrace house at Seven Stringer Avenue. Times were hard, money was tight, and life was conflicted. As with his father being domineering and critical of his son's failure, his mother often showered him with love and praise. Educated at the local secondary school, although he didn't excel academically, where he really excelled was at football. Having shot up to an impressive six foot and one inches tall, making him a decent sprinter, and with enough bulk to be an intimidating presence, he quickly gained a reputation as a skilled, if slightly flashy and hot-tempered player who would boast about his footwork, lambast his rivals, and was prone to flare-ups when he was pulled off the pitch. Dominic Kelly actually began his career as a groundskeeper at Leeds United, age 16. Seen as a gifted player and noted for his headers, he was signed to Sandbach Ramblers, age 17, and he went professional, being signed for Leeds where he played four games from 1935 to 1938 as their centre-half. But just like his brother, he scored no goals. And much to his chagrin, spent much of his time on the subs bench. Transferred to Newcastle United in November 1938 for the sum of £1,100, £100,000 today, he played nine games as a centre-half. But with his final match being a 4-0 defeat against Coventry City, he didn't score a single goal in his whole career at Newcastle. Always believing that he was better than the team, let down by others, and resenting being made to sit out another game when he was clearly the talent... His professional career wouldn't come to an end owing to his arrogance, but owing to the war.
with every football match stopped and the stadiums being used for military ordnance and bunkers. In 1940, Dominic joined the Royal Signal Corps, serving in the Middle East, where he said he was promoted to corporal. But for unknown reasons, he would later state, I voluntarily relinquished the rank. Being football mad, even the rise of the Nazis couldn't stop his ambition. As amidst the bullets and the blood of Palestine, Dominic played in the army team called the Wanderers, alongside such luminaries as Tom Finney of Preston, Mickey Fenton of Middlesbrough, Ted Duckhouse of Birmingham City, Dick Bell of West Ham, and John Galloway of Rangers. But sustaining a career-ending knee injury. By the time the war was finally over, age 30, he was too old to play professionally. And with a torn ligament, he was too infirm. With his dream of playing for England now over, Dominic was crushed at the thought of what could have been. But being over six foot and still physically fit, a new, if less glamorous career would present itself. In 1947, working as a special constable for the Newcastle Police Force, he began playing cricket for Benwell and he represented Northumberland as a member of their 1948 Minor Counties Championship team. His life wasn't as glamorous as being a professional footballer. But now he had a nice little house. He got married. They were trying for a baby. And in 1951, he joined the Newcastle-upon-Tyne City Police, later rising to the rank of Detective Constable in the CID, where he received six commendations, five by a magistrate and one by the Chief Constable, later being described as a diligent and popular officer. Like a phoenix, he had risen from the ashes of his smouldering football career. Only his anger and his arrogance would always get the better of him. Struggling to accept his own failures, in 1956, following a heated dispute with a senior officer, he was demoted back down to constable as this minor celebrity now walked the beat as an ordinary copper. On the 22nd of November 1957, at 11pm, 40-year-old Constable Dominic Kelly entered the Addison Hotel in Baiko. Although after hours, this local PC ordered a pint as the manager totted up the night's takings. Hearing a ruckus outside, as PC Kelly suggested the manager investigate, upon 
re-entering the pub. The barman saw PC Kelly leave and noticed that £21 had gone missing. Tried at Newcastle Magistrates Court on the 30th of December 1957, with this being his first offence, he was fined £70 plus costs. It may seem a light sentence, but now branded a criminal. He lost his job as a police constable. He had to move out of his force-funded house. He found it difficult to find work, and his marriage hit the skids. On the 1st of December 1960, in Whitley Bay, Dominic Kelly was charged with embezzlement, for which he served three months in prison alongside a slew of petty criminals who he had helped put away. Upon his release, he moved to London, initially sending money back to support his wife and children. But as the work dried up and the money stopped, in 1961, he abandoned his family altogether. With a patchy job history and a criminal record, he worked intermittently as a truck driver and a factory worker. But unable to afford a place to stay, or even food to eat, he often slept rough and continued to steal. On the 6th of June 1964, he served 21 days at Penterville for stealing a crate of milk. On the 10th of December 1964 at Clerkenwell, he served two months for loitering with intent. On the 19th of January 1965 at Bow Street, he was fined £3.10 for stealing a wallet from his former place of work. And on the 1st of March 1967, again at Bow Street, he was sentenced to 14 days in prison for stealing bread rolls. The shame, the embarrassment, and the failure of his demise was something that this fallen football star and commended copper could no longer cope with, having been reduced to the state of a bum. In 1968, although an imposing sight, 51-year-old Dominic Kelly was far from the man he once was. Now sporting a pot belly, thinning brown hair, sunken dark eyes, and sometimes a tatty little tash. On the 1st of September 1968, Luke McSweeney, the 30-year-old manager of the Winton Hotel at 35-37 Inverness Terrace in Bayswater hired Dominic Kelly as a night porter. A lowly job on a pitiful wage. Sharing a top-floor room at 106 Queensway with Ronald Jeffrey, the day porter. This should have been his route to redemption given an honest job 
a steady income, three square meals, and a warm place to sleep. And yet it was here that he would subject Maria de Santos to a horribly painful death. But why? Did she reject his love? Impugn his masculinity? Or criticize his failures? No. In fact, it was none of these. As being new to the hotel, he barely knew her. By the 4th of December 1968, Dominic had been the night porter at the Winton Hotel for three months. By which time, he hadn't ingratiated himself with the staff. Most didn't know him, didn't want to know him, and those who did, didn't like him. As he was rude, angry, late, and with a sizable chip on his shoulder, he was unwilling to take any orders from Luke, the hotel manager, a man almost two decades his junior. That day, as a result of his behavior, I dismissed Kelly and told him to take a week's notice. With his job providing him an invaluable income, meals and a warm bed, all that was required of Dominic was a little humility. Only his reply was typically blunt. You can go fuck yourself. Having crossed the line, and with his dismissal taking immediate effect, Dominic unleashed a volley of pure foulness, and as Luke would state, threatened to splash my blood all over the walls. By Thursday the 19th, during the weeks which Dominic could have got a new job, a new wage, and a place to stay, instead of blaming Luke, who had dismissed him owing to his bad behavior. Being homeless, Dominic returned to the hotel to demand the rest of his money, having spent what they had given him. Once again, like a moron without an ounce of brain, threatening to smash up the place if I don't get four quid, the management locked the door, called the police. But by the time they arrived, Dominic had fled. Not being the smartest. That night, as Luke McSweeney slept, a supposedly mysterious voice plagued the phone in his room by taunting... Mr. McSweeney, this is Dominic Kelly. Before hanging up. At 2.30am, in room 102, in the basement of the Winton Hotel on Inverness Terrace, 
Luke was abruptly awoken by a heavy crash. As his window smashed in, sharp shards shattered his bedspread and a thick iron railing thudded to the floor. Dashing up and glaring out of the sparkling hole in the glass, Luke would confirm, I saw Dominic Kelly walking north along the pavement towards Bayswater Road. Again, blaming others for his mess, Dominic had done a bad thing. Only his vengeance against Luke hadn't even begun. By Christmas Eve, the night was cold, as a light smattering of snow and a cold wind whistled down the festive frivolities of Queensway. As pubs heaved with boozy merriment and cheesy carols, being a time for forgiveness, peace on earth, and goodwill to all men. For Dominic, that didn't apply to Luke. Later confessing, I got drunk, thinking about that little homosexual bastard who sacks people for nothing. At 5pm, as Josephine Wilson, the 21-year-old receptionist picked up the phone. Wilden's Hotel, how may I help you? Her sing-song tone swiftly ceased as a gruff voice threatened. Tell McSweeney, don't sleep in your bed tonight. Which Dominic then asked her to write down as a little Christmas treat to be handed to her manager. Josephine would state, He told me that he was going to put a petrol bomb through the manager's window that very night. I also added that the manager had changed his room since the incident when Dominic had smashed his window. But he didn't ask me which room Luke had moved to and I didn't tell him. At 6.15pm, Luke received a call. I recognised it being Dominic Kelly. I immediately dialed Harrow Road Police Station. I then put both lines together, having heard a female voice answer, Hello, Harrow Road Police Station. Kelly said, Who's that? She replied, Harrow Road Police Station. He then stated, This is Dominic Kelly. And over the phone to a police officer, he added, I'm going to burn the hotel down tonight. WPC Jane Atkins, who took the call, would later testify, The man said, Well, now listen. The Winton Hotel. All hell will let loose there tonight. It will be a flaming inferno. I said, Are you going to give me your name? Even though he already had. He replied, Don't be bloody funny. This isn't a joke. It's going to happen. And I'll tell you when. Between 1am and 2am. This will be a warning to McSweeney. Have you got all that? Have you? 
she replied. Yes, thank you, sir. And he replaced the handset. Being Christmas Eve, although the hotel remained open across the silly season, some of the staff had already headed off home to see their loved ones or down the pub for a few pints with their best pals. That evening, Patrick Nolan, the new night porter, finished his shift at 10pm. With Ronald the day porter away, their shared room on the top floor of 106 Queensway was all his. But he was slow to head back. Having watched a few festive films on the box in the hotel lounge, at 12.50am on Christmas morning, he headed back to the hostel, stating, The door was locked, and I used my key to enter. The hallway was quiet and deserted, as he had expected. And in the enclosure, to the right at the foot of the stairs, there was a mattress and some bags containing papers and other rubbish. They'd been there for the fortnight I'd been living there. I then went to my room, without seeing or hearing anyone else. Dressing in a pair of cotton pyjamas, with the radiators on, the duvet up, and feeling all nice and toasty warm. Amidst the festive cheer, which slowly died down outside, Patrick started reading a book to help him slowly not off to sleep. At 1.20am, after reading my book for five minutes, the lights went out. It happened sometimes, so he didn't see this as a concern until he opened his door. I got out of my bed to investigate. I saw a lot of smoke in the passageway, which belched into my room. It didn't feel a great deal of heat, but I couldn't see nothing. Doing the right thing, Patrick shouted, fire, fire, to alert his fellow lodgers to the smoke. It was then I heard a woman screaming, fire, it came from the room next door, occupied by the Spanish girl, Maria. With the hallway thick with dense clouds of choking smoke, and the stairwell a slowly rising wall of impenetrable heat, I went back to my room as I couldn't move and I couldn't see. Being on the top floor, the only way out was the deadliest way. I shouted to her to break a window and to get out, which Patrick did in his room, smashing the locks and opening it wide as the cold winter wind blew in. I didn't hear the girl again 
he would state. But maybe she couldn't hear him, or she couldn't understand him. As a bitter wind blew, I crawled along the ledge towards 108 Queensway. His freezing legs, in a thin and slowly soaking set of cotton pyjamas, shuffling along an icy ledge just one foot wide, with thick plumes of smoke to his right, and a terrifying drop of 50 feet onto the hard concrete to his left. It took all of his concentration not to fall to his death, as a resident in the adjoining building helped him climb to safety. Patrick was safe, but Maria was not. Whether this was a survivor's guilt, but he would later state, just prior to leaving the window, I think I heard the sound of a girl screaming from inside the building. That terrifying moment would plague Patrick Nolan for the rest of his life. But for Dominic Kelly, he hadn't an ounce of compassion in his bones. At 1.30am, he was seen by Patricia Inder a chambermaid at Winton's, who said she saw him watching the flames. Moments earlier, Gwendolyn Jenkins was standing outside Whiteley's trying to get a taxi driver to call for the fire brigade. When a man she later identified in an ID parade as Dominic Kelly aggressively shouted at her, screaming, You fucking stupid, silly little cow. Let it burn. It will do them good. And when she asked him, Why don't you go and help them? He just shuffled away, saying, Let them burn. At 1.36am, the crew of the Edgware Road Fire Station were alerted, unleashing six pumps to extinguish the inferno. It wasn't until 3.40am that it was safe to enter the blackened and badly damaged building, as a water tank had crashed through the attic floor, crushing the staircase from the top to the ground. Aided by Dr. Clark, in room two on the top floor, next door to Patrick's. On the edge of a badly charred bed, in the corner of the room, was an extensively burned young female body. She was unclothed, lying face down, and covered with debris from the roof. Thirty-six-year-old Maria Candida Piero dos Santos from Portugal had been a chambermaid at Winton's for six months. She was quiet, she was well-liked, and she had nothing to do with a petty spat between Dominic Kelly and the manager who had sacked him. 
with her autopsy conducted at Westminster Mortuary by Professor Keith Simpson. Her death was concluded as asphyxiation by smoke fumes. And with her body being too horrifically burnt, the only way for her loved ones to identify her was by an earring. Being the most likely and the only suspect given the trail of evidence he had left. On Wednesday the 6th of January 1969 at 10.10pm, Dominic Kelly was found in a grotty little room at 47 Argyle Street in King's Cross. Taken to Harrow Road Police Station, he didn't ask about the victims. He just laid the blame on others, stating, I suppose that McSweeney, the little poof, has made an allegation against me. Denying he was anywhere near the hotel or the hostel at the time of the fire, with witnesses testifying that he was, and with a set of keys to the front door found in his pocket, he was charged with the unlawful killing of Maria and maliciously setting fire to her dwelling house while Maria and Patrick were inside. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 9th of June 1969, although he would plead, I didn't start the fire. Judge Mervyn Griffiths Jones would reply, The jury have come to the conclusion that you did. It is a tragedy that you, with your background, should have fallen, as you so obviously have done over the last few years. But of course, appealing your sentence, he would claim that it wasn't his fault. Sentenced to just five years in prison for manslaughter, as they couldn't prove that he had maliciously started the fire, he was released in 1947, and he died eight years later in Croydon, aged 65. It is still uncertain to this day why he set fire to the hostel when Luke was asleep in Winton's. But then again, as a failure in life who blamed others for his faults, Dominic Kelly was an arrogant loser to the end. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. And that is that. Oh, stretchy poos time. Stretchy poos. Oh, you're the clock. Oh, there we go. Take your little hat off. There you go, hat off. I'm going to put my little hat on because it's it's really nippy today. It's really bloody cold outside today. It's gone a bit ping. It's gonna. It's it's nipples weather. So. uh Oh dear, yeah, I didn't realise last night that the temperature had dropped down to two degrees. And I, when I went to bed, I thought, oh, shall I shall I have a nice hot water bottle? And I decided not to. Ah, what a mistake at the maker, eh? What a mistake at the maker. Um, oh, welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, unscripted, unedited bit. Uh, normally I'd make a cup of tea, but... But... Ah, I've got I've got some old Jamaica ginger beer. Not the fiery stuff, unfortunately. They only had regular, but you know what? Oh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I've just had my fish sticks and quavers for lunch as well. Oh, God, my life is exciting. Michael, your life is so exciting. Yes, it is exciting. It is really exciting. I have, I have um, fish sticks and quavers for dinner, and sometimes I have an old Jamaican ginger beer. Cool, blimey, governor. So uh, all is going well. Uh, what's going on at the moment? Not much is going on at the moment. Uh, just keeping busy, trying to put out all my episodes. I'm, I'm, I'm away on... I'm having my first holiday in nine years in a couple of weeks, which I'm very excited about. It's, it's less than two weeks today. So by the time you uh, hear this, I will have been on holiday. Mate, stag do. Uh, I can say where it is because I'll have finished by then. It's uh, in Naples. So I'm looking forward to that. Good fun. Good fun. Haven't had a holiday in a long time. And I've got two more coming up this year. Cry. It's not really holidays. It's just a chance to see family, really, because they're all overseas now. But I'm looking forward to it. So there we go. Uh, what else is going on? Um, listening to some new podcasts at the moment. So I thought I'd mention those, see if <coughs> anyone likes them as well. Um, I've just got into one called Brian and Roger, which I finished ages ago. But it's it's quite nice. It's uh, uh, the guy who plays uh, Ray Purchase in Toast. So it's Harry Peacock. And Dan Renton Skinner, who was Angelos Epithmia in um, uh, Vic and Bob. And they do a, a series called Brian and Roger, which is about a little sitcom about two divorced men. Uh, it's quite nice. It's it's, it's good fun. Uh, what else? I've just started listening to Flight 149 about the flight that landed uh, in Kuwait during the Iraq War. 
uh, giving that a go, seeing how it's going. It, it, yeah, it's all right. I'm only about two episodes in. Still listening to Cautionary Tales. That's always good, always interesting. I enjoy that. Uh, obviously, new season of Uncanny has just started. I like Uncanny, but season two, half of me is wondering whether there's a double parter that just went out. And season one's really good. I like all the episodes because even though I don't believe in ghosts, I like diving into it and thinking, uh, thinking, uh, you know, you can see people's traumas in their past and that kind of links to how how they would make the connection of it must be a ghost and things like that. But there's two parter they just did recently there's no evidence for anything that this guy is saying it's just he's just going yeah this happened this happened yeah we saw ghosts we all heard that and it's just like yeah it's just your opinion though it just it feels like uncanny has become a victim of his own success and in order to get on the podcast there's quite a few listeners who are coming up with exciting bullshit in order to get attention and especially the new one that just happened the two-parter um the guy seems to have he seems to have scripted it in advance. You listen to the way he tells the story, and it seems very, very scripted, very prohibitive. So, uh, yeah, interesting one. Anyway, anyway, that's just what I'm listening to at the moment. So let's dive into some uh, thank yous, and then we'll do some quiz questions, and then we'll I'll, I'll throw you into some extra stuff about this episode because there's lots I couldn't tell. Uh, just want to say a thank you to June Horton for your very kind donation. Uh, June sent uh, through my website sent a very kind donation to buy Eva a drink. As, as we said, you know, Eva gets very thirsty. You know, she does a lot of shouting at me and she gets thirsty. So she needs to she needs to get a drink on board. So uh, thank you for thinking of Eva. And by thinking of Eva, therefore, in turn, you're thinking of me. So thank you, June. Um, apologies to anyone who, who sends donations to me via the supporter app. I really do apologize about this because because it's through the city donations that go through my website the second they happen because i built the website an email comes straight to me and then i send you a personal thank you i'd write you a personal email saying thank you but because the supporter is built by someone else they don't let me know when anything comes through so when you send when you send a donation through i have no idea they turn up and because i'm unaware of it i I haven't checked it in months so i apologize um thank you to pixie uh thank you to sue adam i'm really sorry these were like back in january uh so i'm really sorry about that as well as the dane and terry so uh thank you pixie thank you sue adam thank you the dane uh i didn't say the dane after because you put your county but i didn't put that there just in case and terry so thank you all for your very kind donations uh gratefully received uh only just realized it so i, I apologize about that i'm gonna have to find a way of making sure i remember to check them more often um so sorry about that but if, if you did want to make a donation please uh, you could um it, it, it links in the show notes uh I, there's just a link in there you go in there and in there are all of my links and you can go straight to my website and it's i think i think i set up a button called donate or something if you want to but you don't have to because times are hard for everyone at the moment oh, i had a nice chat with my mate who runs a, a restaurant yesterday and he's going through, through really difficult times as a lot of people in the uh, service industry are thinking about shutting everything down which is sad news because they're great people. Anyway, let's do some quiz questions uh, and then we'll dive into some extra stuff. Uh... Right, don't forget, I haven't edited this episode yet, even though you've just heard the edited version. I haven't edited it yet. Therefore, I might balls up some of these questions or I might edit them out. Therefore, the answer won't appear in the episode. Question number one. 106 Queensway is now a restaurant called What on the ground floor? 
Question number two, where was Dominic Kelly born? Question number three, how many siblings did he have? Question number four, he was one of seven... Ooh, sh- uh, well, I just gave away the answer. I, I, I just gave away the answer thinking it was question number four, and it wasn't, it was the answer. So there we go. If you heard it, you get that for one for free. See, I'm not going to edit that out. Uh, question number four, what height was Dominic? Don't say the answer, Michael. Question number five, name the football teams. And there's four of them. Name the football teams he played for. Question number six, what rank was he in the army? Question number seven, what injury, except being old and arrogant, ended his football career? Question number eight, he played cricket for two teams. Name them. Question number nine, what hotel was he convicted of stealing money from? Question question hotel. Question 10, how much did he steal from the hotel? Right. Let's dive into some extra stuff. Right. And then we'll do the answers very shortly. So uh, the Winton Hotel at 3537 Inverness Terrace is still there today. It's now called the it's now called the Bajaya Eden Park Hotel. It's still there. It's it's currently between the Our Lady of the Heaven Catholic Church and the London School of Etiquette. So there you go. Um, the. The hostel at 106 Queensway is obviously still there today. I can't tell you what it's called now, but the building still exists, although it's not. Uh, I don't really know what's upstairs anymore, uh, but we know what's on the ground floor, and that's one of the questions. Um, we'll dive into the stuff about the build-up to the fl- fire, because that was we've already kind of covered most of his life, but there's a lot of other stuff I want to get into. So Patrick Nolan. Patrick was the the new night manager it's still uncertain why why dominic even though he his ire his hatred was of luke and he knew that luke stayed in uh winton's he made the decision to set fire to the hostel uh which was down the road which they're not even connected buildings so there's there's at least a two minute walk between them so it didn't make sense why he would set fire to the staff quarters maybe he was drunk maybe he just decided he just wanted to cause damage because uh, with uh the manager luke uh, being in a different ro- room supposedly because the window had been smashed maybe that was the answer we just don't know so yet yeah, patrick uh he, he, he's came back home he picked up some cigarettes uh he went upstairs it was just like a regular night he pretty much said he uh he said it was roughly around 1 20 p.m he was reading a book he said after even reading my book for five minutes the lights went out uh we can dive into that in a bit he said i got out of my bed to investigate i opened the door and saw there was a lot of smoke in the passageway i quickly closed my door i heard a woman screaming fire it was in reply to my shout of fire I was on the landing outside my door when I shouted and the screaming came from the door room next door to me occupied by the Spanish girl Maria. I went back into my room as I couldn't move on the landing. I couldn't see. Um, uh, He said, I heard a girl's voice next door in room two. Uh, She only shouted fire once. I shouted to her to break the window and to get out. I didn't hear the girl again. I crawled along the ledge towards 108 Queensway. That means he's going south. No, he's going north at that point. 
but but down the road uh but there were no windows open and eventually i was let into the top flat at uh, 110 queensway which is two buildings down so we did a hell of a crawl across a kind of an icy cold ledge he said it was scary climbing along the parapet and possibly because of this i didn't think about the other girl for a few minutes see even in the, even though he was taken to st mary's hospital with shock afterwards uh, he's thinking about the girl at that moment and that stayed with him for a long time whereas whereas um the arsehole dominic kelly didn't give a shit absolutely didn't give a shit uh patrick said i broke two panes of glass in my bedroom window uh you can kind of appreciate this that he's letting air in therefore it would have fanned the flames as well which uh, unfortunately uh that may have added to it added to the problem um i uh, I then crawled across the parapet to the adjoining premises and made my escape that way. I climbed out of my window onto the ledge. At the f- uh, uh, the flat occupier gave me a set of pajamas to wear as mine were torn. So it just shows uh, what horrible conditions it was trying to flee from there. I only briefly mentioned this in here, but um while the flare while the fire was going on so at 1:30 between 1:30 a.m. or 1:40 a.m. on the corner of Queensway and Bayswater which is at the top of the road near Hyde Park Patricia Inder who was uh, a chambermaid who was there um uh she uh she was out with some friends out in the street uh she was out trying to find a taxi and then she uh, saw several fire engines turn down queensway she went to see what it was she couldn't tell at that point that it was the hostel that was on fire so she probably would have been in there around that point but she went out to visit some friends because it was christmas um she said about the same time i felt a touch on my back and i turned around to see dominic kelly standing there we both said hello and he asked me if i was living in winton uh, it was raining i asked him what he was doing he said i'm just out for a walk we spoke for about five minutes but i can't remember what about it was raining hard while i was talking to him he held an umbrella over me a gents black umbrella he was wearing a black macintosh buttoned up to the top um earlier uh he was down at the other side of the road see um where patricia was was the top of the road near hyde park this is kind of the the south side of the road down by uh whiteley's the department store uh and gwendolyn was there gwendolyn jenkins with some friends uh she was trying to get a cab driver to call the fire brigade i'm not too sure at this point why she was trying to get a cab driver to do it why she just didn't go to her phone box i think some people are just like that aren't they they would rather other people do it or maybe she believed that a cab driver has specific skills of which they can get access to any phone i don't know uh she said just then a man who had been standing on the opposite corner of the road shouted you you bad language alert you fucking stupid silly little cow let it burn it will do them good i said why don't you go and help them and he said let them burn he was aggressive he was six feet tall with curly light brown hair he was aged around 45 i didn't notice an accent she said uh he she said he he was wearing uh, a gabardine raincoat with a belt uh, there was one guy dave who was one of her friends who tried to rush into the cleaners shop on the uh, dry cleaners shop on the ground floor uh he said by that point there were flames uh, f- uh spewing through the windows uh he went in 
Uh, he said, I charged the front window with my shoulder and found the shop was full of smoke. I crawled on my hands and knees and realised the fire was near to the stairs. Way down the length of the shop, I had to look around, but no one was there. I returned to the street. Uh, let's dive into what the uh, investigators said. Uh, as mentioned, uh, Fire Brigade, uh, they were unable to get full access to the building. It took six pumps to get it under control and a good amount of water because um, it was really, really raging by that point, even though it only started as a small kind of fire under the stairs because there was a lot of wood in there. I you know uh, a lot of things caught fire and he just kept burning and burning and even the uh michael love who was the acting sub officer said where did he say he said uh he had jets fired at the building and the fire ladder pitched to the third floor uh, uh the passageway looked as if it had been used for storage this is a big problem for that uh he said it was a six-point fire and there were definitely persons trapped within the fire spread to the shop on the ground floor and with the wind blowing from a northerly direction um uh, so the building is f northerly front facing so it's going straight in um this is po this possibly increased the intensity of the fire he did say so it's pretty badly damaged, as you can see. Uh, there was a water storage tank in the roof, uh, and that had given way, and it had gone through the, the, the stairwell, so it was making it impossible for them to get access. And if anyone was in there, impossible for them, or almost impossible for them to escape. They said at 3.40am on the third floor, the front window to the right of the premises, a body of a woman was found lying face down on the divan bed. Um, Dr. Clark, aided by the fire brigade, said on the edge of the on the edge of the bed, a on the edge of, edge of a badly charred bed on the far right hand corner of the room was an extensively burned young female. The body was unclothed and facing down, covered in debris from the ceiling and the roof. Obviously, this was uh, Maria Candida Piera dos Santos, sometimes reported in the newspapers as just Maria dos Santos. Uh, she was thirty eight. She was Portuguese five foot four um she'd uh she'd come from uh quinta de santana uh which is on the atlantic coast uh i did some kind of background i was going to do a whole back kind of background history to her but what i felt it was better to was kind of focus on why he did what he did uh portuguese citizen um she got a passport in uh, april 1968 she arrived in southampton june 1968 uh, she was living with her cousin uh who lived locally uh she's doing everything properly she got a ministry of labor uh permit to work which is valid until the 31st of october uh she was working as a still room maid a read previously at the regency restaurant on terminus road in eastbourne uh and she was a resident there as required on the 16th of august 1968 she reported to the police as was the condition of her visa that she had taken up employment at the winton hotel um and, and a letter dated the 24th of October, which was received from the Home Office, she verified her conditions of landing. So, as you can see, she's turned up, she's looking for work in the country, and she's doing everything right. Um, her last sighting was actually uh, on Christmas Eve. She'd gone out to uh, Surrendal Place to go and see her cousin Maria. Uh, she's got a cousin Maria, and she's called Maria. 
what can you what can you do about that um uh she arrived at about 6 30 she stayed until about 10 o'clock uh, her cousin maria said when she left my address she, she was completely sober uh she then left going back to 106 queensway uh, she was meant to call at her cousin's on Christmas Day at 11am. She wasn't working that morning, but she didn't turn up. Uh, as mentioned, the only uh, the only jewellery she wore was a pair of white gold earrings with a single diamond stud inset in each. Uh, she also had a, a, wrist, a wristwatch as well. Um, it was this that they were able to confirm that uh, that's what she was wearing uh, when she went to bed. So that's how they could identify the body. Also, you know it's her room as well but you can't just say it's her room therefore it must be her body you've got to kind of define it as as, as much as possible originally the uh, senior scientific officer david nayland uh he was having a real difficulty because in and around where the fire had started uh the kind of the detritus the rubbish the matches the the mattress underneath the stairs that's where the fuse box was and as we know the fuse box tripped so they had quite a few professionals in there trying to work out was it a naked flame uh or was it an electrical fault they couldn't find any traces of flammable liquid but then again it could have been a small amount of flammable liquid or maybe he just set fire to the paper uh, we saw, it, it, I mean, it, uh, we've had kind of cases before where fires have been started and normally it's kind of, normally they use an accelerant, but the thing is accelerants sometimes uh, burn off or don't forget that a lot of water has been pushing through this building to kind of get it under, uh, getting it contained. So the kind of evidence of that could have been washed away. Um, the autopsy held by Professor Keith Simpson at Westminster Mortuary uh he said she was burned to the full thickness of the skin in all parts of her body except the lower middle back buttocks and the greater part part of her right leg uh these parts showed scorching only so that's probably where she was uh, probably lying fragments of her hair remained an earring on the lobe of her right ear also remained there were no head injuries uh sooty particles in her nose and throat uh, suggesting she had inhaled deeply into her lungs uh, so therefore she was alive when she was in bed um, so we know that she was alive because obviously Patrick said he heard her screaming uh, it looks like she couldn't get out she probably it looks like because she was underneath her covers that it may have been that she went back into her bed in kind of a state of panic and um, instead of fleeing out the window as some people do panic the first thing they do is go to a place of safety which is their bed not realizing that you know if you think about it she's putting the covers over her head probably to stop her uh her inhaling uh the fumes the smoke as well um they said the color of her blood was characteristic of carbon monoxide inhalation there were no signs of poison or alcohol in her stomach the autopsy gave no cause for suspicion that the woman alive at the time of the fire sustained any other kind of injury prior to being asphyxiated by exposure to the fumes. Therefore, cause of death was asphyxia by fire fumes. Um, as mentioned, her body was identified by her cousin. Um, I didn't put this in the episode because I, I felt we'd kind of covered everything. But Dominic always being a bit of an asshole. Uh, so the next day after the fire luke the uh manager said i was in my room at 3 a.m the room was in the basement again facing inverness terrace i heard a loud crash outside my window and as i was very tired i did not take much notice 
The same day I got up about midday, I opened my door to the basement area and I saw a broken milk bottle and a broken beer bottle. These had obviously hit the iron frame of my window and it was covered with a dried liquid. Uh, the beer bottle was a VP wine bottle. So it's believed that that was Dominic Kelly. Uh, Dominic Kelly fled, although he didn't seem to flee that far. Uh, because he was broke, it is said that they... The police put his description in the newspaper, said, we're looking for Dominic Kelly. He does sometimes go under an alias, but this is his description. It didn't take too long. Pre pretty much, it, it found a short amount of time. Um, it was about two weeks in total, but he, he hadn't moved far. He was at 47 Argyle Road in King's Cross, which was a small hotel. The building's still there today. It looks absolutely horrible. Uh, Sergeant... Colston and DC Stubbs went to the reception desk and said, are you Dominic Kelly? He said, yes, that's right. They said inquiries are being made into a fire and the death which occurred at Winton Hotel. And in connection with that matter, I want you to come to Harrow Road Police Station with me. Kelly said, I suppose that McSweeney, that little puff has been making allegations about me again. And he agreed to come. Uh, he was interviewed later that evening. Uh, D.I. North, who um, uh, dealt with the, the case that we had last week. Same same police station, same detective. Uh, this was literally the other case of um, Polish Joe was a year later after this one. Uh, D.I. North said, we're making inquiries into the death of a young woman who, as a result of the fire, which occurred in the early hours of Christmas morning, uh, I have reason to believe that you may be able to insist with this inquiry. Kelly said, I don't know anything about the fire. The first I knew of it was when your men picked me up this evening, uh, which is a lie, because as we know, he watched it burn. He said, that little bastard McSweeney is trying to get his own back on me. He admitted making threats, saying, yes, I did. I said I would splash blood around. He's a, he's a little bastard. He gave me the sack. He owed me some money. Um, police said, did you threaten to petrol bomb his window? He said, no, I threw a, a VP wine bottle at his window. All I wanted was to get him outside. Uh, I may have mentioned firebombing the hotel, but I didn't mean it. I just wanted to frighten McSweeney. Uh, he seems to have done this a lot on all, all of these. I mean, he, he denied a lot of things. Uh, he also said, uh, police said, what did you do after you called Winton's that night, i.e. Christmas Eve? Kelly said, I got drunk thinking of that little homosexual bastard. Do you know he sacks people for nothing? He got rid of two French girls that same way. Asked where he was drinking, he said, in the big Watneys on Shepherd's Bush Green, uh, which is on the, uh, the corner of Wood Lane. Uh, I, I think it's called the Wellington. Uh, although he would later state that he was actually at the Askew Arms on Askew Road, which is quite a distance from there if you're walking. Um, I then went to Midnight Mass, he said, in the church in Queensway at 12.30am. The sermon had started. Uh, he said he left at 1am, walked around Notting Hill and Bayswater uh, and asked, did you see anyone there? He said no. Of course he saw Patricia who saw him, which is a stupid thing to say no. Uh, he also claimed that he handed in the hotel keys when he um, uh, when he was sacked. But uh, the keys that Patrick Nolan was given, his replacement, uh, the other guy in the room, uh, the day porter, had to get them cut for him because no one could find the keys. So he definitely had them. Um, when picked up, uh, police asked why he wasn't using his alias. He tended to use, use the alias Dunkel. 
What a lovely alias. Uh, they said, why not use Kelly? And he replied, I fled Newcastle owing £800 maintenance to his wife. I haven't paid my wife a penny in years. Um, police said, but you used your real name at Winton's. And he replied, yes, well, I was a wanted man. What a numpty. What a numpty. Uh, ID parade at Harrow Road Police Station on the 10th of January 1969 at 11am. Gwendolyn Jenkins was there. She identified Dominic Kelly as the man she had seen. Uh, he was standing fourth from left. Uh, she asked the inspector, could he speak a line for me? They agreed. Kelly said, what should I say? Um, the second he said that, she said, I knew it was the same accent that I'd heard that night. Uh, all the men were of similar size and shape, but having got that one man to speak, uh, Kelly was the one. Uh, she said, I, it was definitely him. So there we go. Guilty as charged. Um, I think that's it. I think that's everything we need to say about that. Yeah, I think that is it. So I hope, uh, in inverted commas, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you can really enjoy an episode about someone who got burnt to death. But it's just fascinating. Look, at that I'm not really interested in things like that. I'm interested in just people and why they do the stupid things they do. You just It just makes you wonder, really, what? Some people just really need to think about their lives and think about the stupid things they've done and not be at, like Dominic being such an arrogant ass as to believe that other people are to blame for his faults but then again we all know people who are like that some people who can't take responsibility for their own actions but there we go well let's do the quiz questions and let's see how many of them i've ballsed up question number one 106 queensway is now a restaurant called what on the ground floor it's called duck and noodle because a chinese restaurant therefore duck and noodle there you go i've been there question number two where was dominic kelly born Oh, hiccups in Sandbach in Cheshire. You can pronounce it Sandbach if you like as well. Question number three: How many siblings did he have? I gave away this one before, so if you didn't get this one, what the fuck? Uh, uh, he was one of seven. Uh, oddly, I didn't put this in the episode. He had twin sisters who were both called Anne. Hmm. Question number four: What height was Dominic? He was six foot one inches tall, although some people did say he was six foot three. Uh, question number five Name the four football teams that he played for. So it's uh, Sandbach Ramblers, Leeds United, Newcastle, and during wartime, the Wanderers. Question number six What rank was he in the army? Uh, he was a corporal, although he said he relinquished the rank. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Do you really believe he relinquished the rank? Or given his history, do you think he was demoted? Question number seven. What injury, except being old and ignorant, old as in 30? But then again, it's old for football. Uh, except being old and ignorant, ended his football career. He had a torn ligament to his right knee. Question number eight. He played cricket for which two teams? It was the Newcastle Police Team and Benwell. Question number nine. Uh, what hotel was he convicted of stealing mon money from? It was the uh, Addison Hotel in Biker. Biker Groove, man. We're spooky. Uh, and question number ten. How much did he steal from the hotel? 21p. 
Poons month. That's £21 in English. Uh, so there we go. There we go. There's that episode. I hope you enjoyed that. Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. That's me done. I'm off to start editing that at the, uh, at the uh, Starbucks. Starbucks, which is uh, riddled with um, uh, fruit flies everywhere. Really, uh, everywhere. Disgusting. Anyway, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, have yourself a good week. Folks, stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.